I think we're recording. Yeah, it's transcribing. Cool. So today I'm really excited to share this very special uh, BES podcast episode with our listeners. Uh, it's being released as part of our initiative for 2023 for Black History Month. The purpose of this series of blog posts and podcasts is to provide a platform for Black ecologists and to showcase the fantastic work and research that they are doing. On that note, I'm delighted to welcome Gideon Deme to the podcast. Gideon is a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Biology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, America. Gideon has actually provided us two blog posts for previous year's initiatives, so I'm very glad to have a chance to catch up with him and see what he's been up to in the past few years. In addition to this, and perhaps even more excitingly, Gideon is now already intimately involved in the BS as he serves as an associate editor for Ecological Solutions and Evidence. So hi, Gideon. How are you doing? Hi, Frank. Uh, thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you on. So for the people who might not have read your blog posts, which they should because they're great, but for people who haven't, um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Perhaps we can start by talking about what your research interests are. Um, I think my research interests kind of covers a lot of grounds mm -hmm. in the field of ecology. So I am more into macroecology, mm -hmm. um, which is closely related to what I would call global change ecology or biology. Um, I also do small stuff about community ecology. And uh, recently, or on the side way, I have an interest in understanding how policies of government and private institutions are kind of impacting plastic waste management, especially in Africa, where I'm originally from. Um, so I think that's what I'm mostly interested in. Uh, so in trying to understand the policy assessment and global change biology, I do more of synthetic study of large data sets or the literature that have been published out there. Oh, fantastic. And can you talk a little bit, you know, as a postdoc now, can you talk a little bit about your journey um, towards where you are now? Um, how have you how have you got here? Uh, sure. I think the journey all started. Um, maybe I should say this that I've never mentioned that originally the plan was for me to read medical sciences mm -hmm. uh, but deep within me i love to explore so i didn't see reading medicine or pharmacy or medical laboratory technology as a kind of a thing that would allow me to explore so um i got into instead of going in for a bachelor degree in medicine, I went in for a bachelor degree in biology at the University of Abuja in Nigeria. Um, that was 2008, and I graduated in 2013, moved in after two years for my master's in zoology, where I kind of tried to understand how um, the environment and sort of infrastructural development of the urban system is impacting the population dynamics of vector-borne 
uh, disease insects like the mosquitoes, um, the uh, sort of also talk about sets of flies at some point of my research career. Uh, after that, I took a break for a while, served as a research assistant to a great mentor that I have in uh, Professor Malan, who uh, kind of secured a funding together with his collaborators in China to sort of explore the diversity of butterflies that occur in Cross River National Park. And getting into that, we I encountered some reptiles like the lizards, the geckos uh, during the field work. And that kind of fascinated me to like, oh, how are these guys surviving in different ecosystems? So that sort of ignited my idea to pursue a PhD in reptile ecology. So I travel all the way from Nigeria to China and Beijing, one of the biggest research institutes at um, Institute of Zoology, Chinese Academic of Sciences. Um, stayed there for three years, wow. did some rigorous studies on the, the macroecology and reproductive ecology of reptiles to try to understand if uh, the female lizards are developing or are evolving some special traits that will enable them to uh, adapt to the various climatic uh, regions that are found in China, or mm -hmm. whether it was just a, a, a thing with plastic or plasticity. That is just a sort of um, a rapid response to a change in the environment. Um, after that, I had to, I mean, I had fun working with reptiles, but I, I told myself that, no, I think I'm more interested better in insects. So I moved back to the US where I'm now doing um, sort of range shift analysis and the evolution of range limits in butterflies using a huge data set that span across 20 years that wow. has been collected by the Lepidoptera Society. Yeah, so that is how the journey began and that is where I am currently. Fantastic. So there's a few things I want to pick up on in there um, that I think are really, really interesting. So you mentioned, first of all, you mentioned, you know, that the, I suppose I want to ask where the pressure came from to, you know, read medicine, for instance, was that a pressure that you feel was due to sort of your circumstances growing up in the society you grew up in? Or was it a family pressure? Or was it a pressure you applied to yourself? Why is it that, because I think this has happened a few times where I've spoken to people and the idea is you should maybe go read medicine or do law or do these types of um, degrees. So I, I was wondering where that pressure came from for, for you. That's a fantastic question. So uh, for me, I would say it was uh, what an ecologist would define as a multifarious uh, sort of pressure. Mm -hmm. So uh, a little bit of background of Nigeria. Um, I think I wrote it in one of my blog posts. That's the one in uh, 
that was published in 2020, mm-hmm. where if you are not into medical sciences, then it is assumed that you don't want to make money, and mm-hmm. you don't want to be famous, um, you are into some boring stuff. And there, there's this joke that uh, people who are in medical sciences will always uh, say that if you study anything zoology or botany or biology, then you will just end up being a zookeeper. <laughs> 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 so, so because of that, um, your family will want you to make a name for the family. Mm-hmm. So it was both a pressure from the family, uh, which is an indirectly an indirect response, so to say, to the environmental pressure that, oh, if you read single honor courses, then you have no chance of uh, being successful, so to say, mm-hmm. and in good money um, or sort of making an impact in the society. So it was a kind of a diverse pressure of the family where I grew up, society, and more so, you know, um, I mean, it is no shame to say that Nigeria has lots of tropical diseases. And so people think that if you study medicine, then you are capable of helping people and curing diseases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I suppose following on from that, um, because I think it's really interesting that there are people that can overcome those pressures to pursue the things that they really want to pursue, um, especially when, you know, the pressures aren't related, uh, are so related to perhaps financial situation or, you know, things that aren't just about desire to study a thing for love of that thing, you know. Um, So I wanted to ask actually just to wind it back all the way and ask just a little bit about your background in terms of um, where you grew up, you know, what were you like as a child? Were you, you know, you mentioned that you're an explorer and you love to be out and about. Can you sort of describe where, what, what you were exploring as a kid and your, your impression of nature as a kid, or did that sort of come later? Um, that's a fantastic question, because I think I, I always tend to have a unique uh, experience. So I grew up in, let me say, three different areas uh, sort of coming up. So um, my dad was a sort of an elementary school teacher mm-hmm. where uh, before then um, we were living where he was working, which was uh, part of the bigger state, which is the plateau where uh, I'm originally from. So in 1996, when the uh, state was created out of the Plato state, we were found to have belonged to the original Plato state based on the geographical location of my ancestry, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, and a military administrator was sort of appointed who gave a decree that anybody who has a linkage to Plato State will have to vacate and return back. So I kind of moved into the village with my granddad and my grandmom, 
and stayed there for uh, two years wow. before we finally moved again into the city of Jos. Stayed for three and a half years, and then my dad resigned his employment and became a Bible translator, where he was now transferred back to the village to go and translate the Bible in my local dialect, right? So I have to move back again into the village. And so that was where I can say, and that was in 2001. So I had my uh, high school in the village. Uh, I never had the opportunity of traveling into a city until mm -hmm. when I got admitted in 2008 to read the biology at the University of Abuja. So I can say that a fair amount of time growing up was spent in the village mm -hmm. and that sort of provided me the opportunity to explore, let me say, different ecosystems with my friends. Um, growing up uh, from a family that we were financially poor. We had to sort of hunt for some of these guys as alternative protein, source of protein. So mm -hmm. we would all go out there in the thick forest, hunt for birds, which sometimes now I feel bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then who also go to the grassland areas and hunt for some cryptic animals like um, rats that were already going extinct, lizards. And uh, so at that spot, I had the opportunity of falling in love with birds where you kind of see different colors, you enjoy sometimes you see a bird that you feel like shooting it down with the catapult but you feel like oh this is so beautiful i don't <laughs> think i want to have that as my meal so let me just let it fly and mm -hmm. um I, I can remember very vividly the biggest experience where you kind of see a wide eagle flight no not an eagle so to say um oh i've forgotten the name of this but it is purely white in color mm -hmm. and so whenever they and they fly in groups i i'm sorry i'm not an ornithologist so i have <laughs> poor knowledge of birds taxonomy but they fly in groups so that gives us the opportunity to watch them fly all over until they disappear into the sky so Birds were my favorite, but I never wanted to study birds. Mm. And the simple reason was that I thought lots of people were only into birds. So I wanted to study things that people aren't interested in, to sort of make people learn to become interested in them. So mm -hmm. that was my choice for going in to study insects and reptiles. That's fantastic. So I'm going to put you on the spot now and ask you for, well, actually, no, do you know what? First of all, I want I want to really nail down into um, what the ecosystem is like where you grew up, because I think, especially with ecology and you've got all sorts of issues with like helicopter science and people, you know, essentially it's a colonial issue of, you know, white scientists coming in and gathering data and picking it up and then 
leaving and not not sparing any thought for any of the sort of local slash indigenous communities there. So I really want to understand your perspective of what these ecosystems are like in Nigeria, especially since, um, as you say, there's lots of pressure to not go into zoology, biology, any kind of ecological sciences aspect. So not so much a love letter, but more of a <laughs> overview of, of, of what it what it's just like, because I, I don't know, and I'm sure lots of our listeners probably don't know what what it looks like actually on the ground. Um, interesting. So <laughs> the ecosystem of Nigeria is sharply divided. Mm-hmm. And I've had the opportunity of visiting at least 30 states out of the 36 states in Nigeria to do some ecological research. So I can say I have a fair knowledge of what it looks like. Uh, But let me be a little bit biased to start with where I come from. (laughs) (laughs) So just like you heard me say, I'm from Plato State. So it was derived from the plateau, right? The Mm -hmm. name is derived from the plateau. So it's a mountainous ecosystem where I grew up in where you have lots of mountains uh, with tall trees on the mountains, but grassland on the uh, uh, arable places where we now practice subsistence agriculture in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of provided me a very good knowledge to imagine things surviving at a higher elevation. And that was entirely my PhD Thesis where I kind of look at uh, the adaptation or plasticity of uh, uh, reptiles across gradients because uh, China has a high mountain elevation. Um, so going down south, you begin to see a thick forest vegetation, and that was where I went to in. Uh, across River National Park to sort of do some studies. And uh, it is warmer. Uh, you go up north, it's close to the Sahara Desert. So mm-hmm. it is drier, little grasses growing up and shrubs that will sort of adapt to the desert. And to talk about, honestly, growing up, if you say you wanted to be a scientist, people will just look at you as somebody who is crazy because this the mentality was that only the white guys or the white folks, so to say, can be scientists based on the literature, based on what was in the books. And so each time we actually had the experiences of seeing white guys coming to take up the ecosystem studies in Nigeria. And I would say I was a little bit selfish then because I felt I should be describing my ecosystem mm-hmm. <laughs> instead yeah, of, of course. Uh, somebody coming from somewhere to come and describe the ecosystem with me. But then here's the tricky thing. You don't have funding from government because you are not studying medicine, right? Mm-hmm. You need funding to do some ecological studies. So 
at some point, you needed to collaborate with the white guys who aren't bad. It's just that they are also exploring opportunities of new ecosystems to describe things and to talk about things, right? So mm -hmm. it was at the point after my master's that we started collaborating with the white scientists that would come from Europe or from China uh, to sort of be participants in the research. And so at that point, you are now gaining understanding of the real ecosystem and not just what you are observing, but you are now doing some studies to prove or to show what is going on. But at the same time, you are also mastering the art of applying for funding, getting to know, mm -hmm. oh, how can I get for some funding to now make me an independent uh, researcher? Because you want to, uh, it is good to collaborate, but sometimes you need to lead the collaboration, not mm -hmm. just you being a co-PI in the system where the PI takes all the glory or all the initiatives, right? and can mm -hmm. call your idea bluff or whatever he feels or they feel that it is not working into the sort of questions that they want to ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Yeah, thanks for that answer. That's really great. Um, so I actually wanted to now pick up on your time in China because that's amazing. Um, and just sort of um, going back through my memory here of other interviews that I've had with other black ecologists during Black History Month, this, you know, series that we have. And I remember some of them involving people who are black ecologists who are in Africa and have only ever worked with black ecologists or largely worked with black ecologists, especially ECRs. Um, so when I've sort of asked them about their experience as a black ecologist, they they sort of say it feels normal because because you know that's that's just what everyone else is. Everyone's black ecologist around me, so it doesn't feel like this kind of um, that there's any kind of difference or any noticeable kind of you know what I'm trying to say. So, but going to China, you can't avoid that. <laughs> you know, that's, um, I think that's really interesting, and I'd really like to get a sense of what your experience was of. Working in China, um, you know, especially since it's extremely hard language to pick up on and um, definitely not one of the more diverse places um, to go to. So what was that like? Yeah. How, how did that feel? Were there any barriers to you sort of completing your research? Was there any kind of hurdles? Is there anything that you really loved about it? Um, just want to dig into that a little bit. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, that's uh, a great question. And um, let me start by stating this foundation that aside China having a different language that is sort of different from what I was trained in, um, China is deeply culturally rooted, right? Mm -hmm. So they have their culture mm -hmm. and they stick by the culture. So having laid that foundation, it was a fun experience that was sort of matched with difficulties. 
Mm-hmm. And let us not forget that China just started opening up to the wider world pretty recent. Just mm-hmm. like you've uh, alluded to the fact that it is one of the less diverse uh, country that we have. Um, so when I got into China, the original plan was to sort of do disease ecology, mm-hmm. right? So I had a proposal accepted by the government through the Chinese uh, scholarship uh, scheme to sort of understand what are some of the relationship between host and their parasites as it relates to climate change and how uh, resources are changing. Mm-hmm. But then when I got there, the story changed and the music changed. So it was a shocker. One had to deal with cultural shocks of learning the language, seeing mm-hmm. people I am not used to, and integrating in a society where you have to speak a language that you've never spoken in life. Mm-hmm. And then here at my research place was my entire research direction changing. And here I found myself having to do quantitative and computational analysis that I was not used to. So I was trained as a field ecologist who does laboratory work, right? But here mm-hmm. I am, I'm to do macroecology. Wow, yeah. And Big the change. funding was constrained for only three years. So you had no time to begin to lack or to, you have to just, what we we'll call in ecology, trail with the climate. Mm-hmm. So you have to be on the fast lane to sort of grab things. Um, so we spent six months learning the language. And after that, we moved into the research institution for our research. Um, so out of three years, you were only level two and a half years. <laughs> and <laughs> Chinese Academic of Sciences has a policy that you must publish a Q1 research article of your dissertation, at least two of your chapters before you can even put in a request to graduate. Mm-hmm. So I was in the midst of pushing in, doing stuff, learning our analysis, self-teaching myself, because your advisor and your lab mates, if you ask them any question like, hey, folks, how can I do this? The, the next thing you will hear, Timbodong. That means I cannot hear your English. You need to speak in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And now, before you could speak in Chinese, you need to learn the professional stuff, like what is ecology in Chinese, what is art. So it was a tricky, tricky, tricky situation. Mm-hmm. So the next thing that I had to do was to, and let us remember that Google is banned in China. So I cannot even browse using Google. Uh, WhatsApp is banned. A lot of the social media that were connected to the outside world were not yeah. in use. So I had to get a VPN that I subscribed uh, and paid for. 
and then connected with folks on Twitter. I I, I connected with amazing people like Dan Noble, who is at Australian National University, connected with Nicholas Wu, a very good folk, my fellow mate. Uh, who now that was where I could ask questions like, oh folks, I'm trying to do this. What's the and uh, this is the problem that I'm sort of getting into, and they'll be like, Oh, um, sorry, I got experience with that. Oh, oh, have you tried this? and sort of stuff like that. So that was how I can say I started grabbing some few knowledge of what to do, and then the pandemic was sort of a blessing in these guys because mm. my work was theoretical in nature, so I didn't need to have access to any laboratory. So when I when we were locked down, I had all the opportunities to bug people around, ask questions, <laughs> explore, fall, rise, fall, rise. And yeah, so it wasn't an experience that I would ever wish my worst enemy to have, if I ever yeah. have an enemy. But it was fun because it sort of made me to be resilient to mm -hmm. some kind of external and internal pressures. Yeah. And it was also a sort of a way of building myself to be an independent scientist who can boldly reach out to folks to collaborate. And it was an opportunity. I, I was thinking if if I didn't experience that, I would have probably have a very narrow network. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that experience sort of provided me a platform to have a wider network. Uh, I mean, I've never been to the UK, but I have folks that I'm collaborating with at the moment to do some research uh, on the biodiversity of the United Kingdom. Amazing. I've never been to Australia, but we have already published stuff with some good scientists that are in Australia. Uh, even before I came to the United States, I published with people that are in the United States. So it was a, an experience that if you don't build a mental resilience to the pressure, mm -hmm. you get swallowed. Yeah. But yeah. There are lots and lots of advantages out there in building yourself. And this is not to sort of dig down on people that don't have the ability to mentally sustain some of these pressures, but it is just to sort of say that some environments, like uh, what I will always say, some environment, some stressful environmental condition will sort of force you to adapt quickly. And mm -hmm. you know that's what we are beginning to argue about contemporary evolution, where you have to evolve some traits faster, or else you get swallowed by the environment and you get extinct. And mm -hmm. luckily for me, I didn't get extinct. Rather, <laughs> I, 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 I I progressed rapidly and I evolved some traits that are helping me today in my work. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, life imitates art. It, it, yeah, I love that. That's great. Um, so 
I mean, yeah, my partner always says to me, growth is meant to be uncomfortable. So whenever I'm sort of complaining that something's really hard, I should just say growth is meant to be uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> which I, I think is quite good. But yeah, so that's, I think that's a really interesting thing to pick up on because um, especially as a black ecologist from Africa, you know, the the onus is always or largely on researchers to publish in English um, and to, you know, know the language intimately enough to write it scientifically, which is, you know, hard enough for people who are native English speakers to do, let alone people who have to learn the language. So then having to then go to China and do that, yeah, that's that's big. <laughs> I can I can understand why you um why that would have been so tough, but that it it sort of forged you in in a way to becoming who you are. So that's really cool. I wanted to ask, um, we'll bring it back to Nigeria and talk about, you know, the, you know, you've spoken about wanting to, is it study plastics more, uh, the impact of plastics in Africa? Um, perhaps this is your moment to try and inspire people, you know, what, perhaps you can talk, what, what are the barriers for, what were the barriers for you? that you wish weren't there? What what could be done differently to ensure that those barriers that might have tripped you up um, can be got rid of for the next generation of black ecologists? That's a very interesting question that I always love to talk about whenever mm. I have the platform. And so to just, sorry to sort of, uh, maybe respond to a, a very interesting comment that you talked about publishing and stuff like that. Mm. And in China, you have to publish or perish. Yes. Right. Yeah. But one thing with that sort of was an advantage to me is that was the fact that I didn't have to learn English and I didn't have to publish in China, in Chinese mm -hmm. language, so to say. Because rightly or wrongly, colonization had sort of given me some advantage. So mm -hmm. in Nigeria, our official language is English. I don't know if you know. So from kindergarten, you are taught in English right up to your university level, right? Mm -hmm. And let me even surprise you to tell you that at every point of your transition into the next educational level, you have to pass your English at a high grade. So before you get admitted into the primary school, you have to pass your kindergarten English perfectly. Mm -hmm. Before you get admitted into the higher education, like secondary school, you have to pass your primary school English. Before you get admitted into the university, you have to pass three stages of English. One, the National Examination Council, which is for the Nigerian uh, government. You have to pass the West African Examination Council, which is the English language at the West African level. Then you have to now pass the Joint Admission Board Examination Regulation English Language Test, which is now the sort of uh, a regulatory body that supersedes all the higher institutions in Nigeria. So wow. now I'm talking about the barriers. 
one barrier that I wish never existed uh, would be illiteracy. Mm -hmm. um, I would define illiteracy in this context that people don't know of the opportunities that exist in ecology, mm -hmm. right? Just like I said, the pressure came from the fact that if you study ecology or biology or zoology, you would definitely end up at the lower end of the society. Mm -hmm. So if I had the opportunity today, I would be like, let us re-educate our people on how very, very essential it is for us to study the ecology. And this is becoming more interesting with the diverse environment that we are having due to the insert of Anthropocene. That's the human impact and the human pressure on the ecosystem. So humans are impacting based on the rate of urbanization. People are migrating from local communities into the urban areas, and mm -hmm. that is creating pressure on the ecosystem at the urban scale level. People are impacting the environmental, or let me say the ecosystem on the plastic uh, level that we are talking about. The mm -hmm. pandemic sort of brought in a situation where we had to always be on our nose marks, um, where you just sort of removed and discarded into the environment. Those things don't decompose, right? Mm -hmm. So. I have a paper that I'm even writing with colleagues where I'm, I titled The Everlasting Plastics. Mm -hmm. How is the biodiversity responding to the presence of plastics? And so the plastics that we throw into the society will always remain. Who are those that are sort of going to explore the impact of these plastics on the ecosystem? We mm -hmm. need ecologists, right? So we need a reorientation of what ecology is all about and how very important is ecology, especially with the onset of climate change. Some people are still debating whether there's climate change. I mean, I'm not here to debate that, mm -hmm. but I'm here to say that as an ecologist, I've seen climate change happening, right? Yeah. Whether people agree to it or not, it's a different conversation altogether that we will have to debate on another day if the platform is provided. But if you are denying that there's no climate change, then you would not deny the fact that there are plastics in the environment. Like we have mm -hmm. lots of waste that are not properly managed. So how are the organisms responding to that? We need a reorientation. The second barrier that I would sort of love it taking out is the fact that we need more access to funding opportunities by the government of Nigeria, or since the world is now a global village by the entire uh, government of countries, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the key things that you sort of find very, very worrying is the lack of the effort by government and private organizations to fund lots of ecological studies. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I'm, I'm always 
excited to jump into the bandwagon of working for the BES because of this lots of funding opportunities that BES is providing. And I sort of read where by 2024, January, the funding opportunities would have expanded, right? Mm. So we need other organizations to key into this kind of initiative. We need, we need the government to key into this kind of initiative to provide more funding opportunities so that the competition that is um, exerted on the funding opportunities of the British Ecological Society will be spread around, right? So mm -hmm. I, I think I should also mention that I'm also a member of the uh, Review College of the British Ecological Society mm -hmm. Grand Body. Grants College. And yeah. I can tell you, yeah, I can tell you that as at the last round, I reviewed about five to six applications. I mean, and at the end of the day, only about 20 opportunities were provided for this uh, smaller stuff. So what I'm trying to argue is that out of the five small grants that I that I, I, I sort of review, only two were funded. And this is not to say that others were badly written, right? Mm. They were exceptional studies with good ideas, but we just had to prioritize at least just two so that others can. So we have lots of pressure on the funding opportunities of the little organizations or the uh, organizations that are providing the funding opportunities. We have pressure on them. So if we have expanded funding opportunities, then we can spread around the applications so that if you don't get this, you will get the other, right? Mm -hmm. And another barrier that I find it very, very uh, interesting, which I think will need to be addressed, is the sort of the systemic discrimination, especially. Mm -hmm. I find it very, 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 very disheartening, right? Where having come from a country that was once colonized by the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. I can bet you that anybody that was born after me probably cannot even speak my language properly or the indigenous language mm -hmm. because English has eroded everything, right? The culture, yeah. the system and everything. But then you still have universities or collaborators in the United Kingdom not able to assess students from these kind of countries like Nigeria that had to study from kindergarten to the university level in English, but still being told that they have to take English language tests. Mm. And I can bet you that the money required, it's not that people are scared of taking that, right? Because, I mean, what kind of English will you write that you've not written before in the past and you've not passed? But here's the thing. An average Nigerian, and which the report is out there, probably has less funds that can be used to register for these things. Let's take, for instance, now you need 60 pounds mm -hmm. to write that examination. I can bet you that 
to be on the conservative side, 60% of the students in Nigeria cannot afford 60 pounds mm -hmm. to pay for that examination. So that is already a disadvantage. And what are you telling them to write? An English language test that they have been writing for their entire life. So there's a mm -hmm. systemic bottleneck that we need to also look into, right? Mm -hmm. How about, okay, you should write this exam if your language of instruction was not English. So mm -hmm. that let us know if we can communicate. But no, you have somebody who's maybe in the last 20 years of his life, having spent 25 years, has been writing everything in English, still being told, you need to give us 60 pounds to write an English language test exam before you can be admitted into the university to study ecology. So that kind of thing also discourages people from mm -hmm. having to collaborate with the scientists that are out there to give them the platform to explore their ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these are some systemic, cultural, and let me say societal issues that we need to look into for folks that are of the Black ancestry in Africa to have the platform to be able to pursue their interest in ecology. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Thank you for that. And that very, very nicely sort of summarises the issue, but it also brings us on to the next part of this interview, which I think um, very nicely goes into it. You know, I wanted to ask about, well, I like that you mentioned the whole reorientation and the need for values to be reconsidered in what we want people to be doing in our societies. Um, and that starts not from just the individual, it starts from the top down, from governments, key figures and key stakeholders, organisations, everything. So I wanted to ask you, as we are talking about Black History Month and, you know, it's a month where it's a chance for us to celebrate Black history, heritage and culture and iconic figures who have made impact. Um, who are your Black role models within ecology and beyond? Or can just be out, outside of ecology, but, you know, someone that perhaps played a pivotal role in that decision where you thought, no, I'm not going to do medicine or medical studies. I, I, I want to pursue biology. And this is this is the thing that I love doing. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think to sort of say that I have a black role model in ecology growing up will be a fallacy mm -hmm. at this point. But then as the journey gets interesting and higher, I sort of met amazing people that now serve as role models, right? Or that mm -hmm. I sort of always admire what they do and probably we've never even met in life. Mm -hmm. um, so I would probably not think that they are role models, but I would think that they are sort of icons that I would want to explore the system to reach to their standard. And mm -hmm. one interesting guy 
is Barnabas Daru, mm -hmm. who is, I did mention in my last blog post, who, we are from the same state, right, but different uh, regions. And he grew up in a very, very, very modest society, just like myself, where, I mean, even without meeting him and hearing that this was where he grew up in, I would definitely know that he had no access to funds. Mm -hmm. um, so he read zoology at the University of Jos and explored the collaborative mode and found himself in South Africa where he did his master's and his PhD in biogeography and evolutionary ecology. And went to postdoc to do a postdoc at Harvard University. And today he's a professor at Stanford University at a pretty young age. I mean, mm -hmm. if I'm to estimate his age, I'll probably say maybe he's just three or four years older than myself. But I would definitely think that he put in a lot of hard work into becoming who he is today and he does a lot of cool stuff about the biogeography of marine systems or marine plant diversity he has worked on seagrass he has also done some good stuff about the phylogenetic diversity of birds in relation to diversity of plants that mm -hmm. they feed on he has published amazing works that have sort of improved the biogeography understanding, the biogeographic understanding of um, some systems or some species. So, I, I mean, we've always emailed each other with, mm -hmm. uh, he's here in the United States, but I've not had time to sort of meet him in person. He's one great guy that I think has always, whenever I, I found challenges and difficulties, especially with review comments, to try mm -hmm. to push in to publish some cool stuff. And I just log into his website. I mean, I can say this without fear of contradiction that I do visit Barnabas webpage maybe once every week. It is one of wow. the most visited web page that I do to sort of mm. see the new update because you always have this new cool stuff coming out, right? So I do visit it. Yesterday was the day I visited for this week and he had some interesting stuff going on there. So yeah, Barabas has been a, but to sort of talk about role model, I love soccer, I love football. Mm -hmm. So I grew up admiring soccer fans before my interest into uh, soccer uh, players before my interest developed in ecology um and so uh terry harry who played mm. for arsenal i support arsenal football club i'm a supporter of arsenal football club terry harry is my role model in football because i played mm. the football also but at the local level yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what about like Victor Osimhen, you know, the striker at the moment for Nigeria? It's oh, like, yeah. He yeah. is doing an amazing, I mean, Victor Osimhen is such an amazing chap that I think he, will, he, he would, 
you know, our greatest uh, all-time scorer record mm. holder is late Rashidi Yakini. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just looking at Victor's uh, stats the other day, and I kind of found out that he's just 17 goals shy away from taking up that record. And I wow. have confidence in Victor's ability to take up that record. Yeah, I mean, it looks like he'll do it. But anyway, <laughs> we, we could just talk about football now for the next half. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thierry Henry, yeah, absolutely. That's So, big into football. And is there is there anyone in terms of inspiring figures that, you know, it doesn't have to be a black person, and anyone that, you know, some friends or any anyone you can think of that you think, yeah, they've played a key role in getting me to the success of where I am today. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, I have quite a few names that mm. I would love to mention. Uh, one of my biggest um, and favorite mentor is Professor Malan, as you could hear, I earlier mentioned, he mm-hmm. mentored me during my undergraduate, my master's, gave me the platform to be a, a research assistant, which sort of provided me the platform to travel to do my PhD. I mean, till today, I call him regularly on the phone, we collaborate. We recently had our paper published um, uh, in one of the cool journals. And I, I, I will, I, let me just mention that, interestingly, all my dissertation chapters were published in cool mm-hmm. journals. So he is a collaborator in one also. Um, I had a senior uh, in the, when I was uh, at my university. He was two years ahead of me. His name is uh, Dr. Ritana. He's an assistant professor at Howard University here in the United States at Washington, D.C. He is somebody that I admire also. I love what he does. He's a cool guy who does cool stuff. And he has put in lots of hard work also. Um, um, But I've always been inspired to do ecology based on Darwin's theory of natural selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, where mm-hmm. he believes that evolution is slow, but we begin to find evidence that evolution is rapid and it can happen in humans' uh, time scale. Um, Ryan Martin, who I'm currently uh, working with as my indirect postdoc advisor, has always inspired me. Uh, it's that, so this is his fun question. Each time he mm. sees my paper is out, he'll be like, hey, Gideon, yeah, I saw this cool stuff. So what's next? What's in the burner? What are you thinking about? <laughs> so, you know, always. And whenever he sees a, an opportunity to for me to collaborate, he throws me in there and be like, hey, I think you are, you, you'll be good in doing this. Whenever he sees a job up, he'll quickly email. I mean, wine has been a great uh personality since I arrived here uh, in the U.S. He has been mm-hmm. helping me. He has shown me places to sort of 
get adapted here, but don't go to this neighborhood because they don't like black folks. I just thought <laughs> I should mention, don't go to this neighborhood because uh, there are lots of crime activities going on there. You might be caught up in the web. So he's my kind of warning signal and at mm. the same time, inspiration when it comes to doing some cool stuff. And to sort of mention also my postdoc advisor, Sarah has been amazing poking me questions like, hey, so what's next? Okay, you did this cool analysis. Have you thought about doing this? So that kind of also make me expand. And she'll be like, have you read this paper that was just <laughs> published? I think that would be of interest. Yeah, so um, I would say also that I met an amazing scientist while I was in China, where I traveled for a program is from the UK. His name is uh, Richard Collett. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Richard was amazing. He sort of threw me into the tropical ecology question arena mm -hmm. because he did lots of stuff on tropical ecology. Uh, but he's retired now. He's back to London where he's enjoying his retirement. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you for that. That's that's really great. So just as we kind of wrap up, um, I think we've covered quite a lot of grounds here and um, there's been some really great answers to some quite tricky questions, I think. So um, I just want to really thank you for that. Um, before we wrap up, the last thing I want to ask, and I think I want to finish on a positive note, I want to finish on, you know, a affirming note. What is the one piece of advice that young Gideon, that you that young Gideon should have been told, or what would you tell young Gideon if you could speak to young Gideon right now? What would you say to help him on his journey? Interesting question. I think <laughs> I will summarize it in a few words. Mm -hmm. I'll be like, "Hey, young Gideon, follow your." desire and aspiration. Mm -hmm. Listen to the society, but care less about what the society is saying, if it is against your instinct, because this is me for you. I've always found it very impressive and kind of tricky that if I have an instinct to pursue something, mm -hmm. and then along the line, I get diluted with lots of conversations that sort of come from the society that, hey, this won't be great. How about this? Mm -hmm. Whenever I divert what my instinct had told me to do from, whenever I divert from what my instinct kind of told me to do into what the society would probably want, I always find myself failing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in as much as it is pretty good to receive advices from people i think the greater strength you have is following the crazy idea that is in your head mm -hmm. and i'll borrow your words to say that development isn't supposed to be comfortable mm -hmm. so when whenever the crazy idea hits your head just know that you have the ability to do it you just need to harness the ability in you mm -hmm. Fantastic. And don't get right. scared. Don't get scared of 
foreseen it because it might be tricky, it might be bumpy, it might hit you badly <laughs> at some point. But if you don't drop in the ball and you put your eyes on the ball, you definitely smile at the end of the day and you'll be proud of yourself. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Powerful words. So yeah, thank you very much, Gideon. I really, really appreciate your time. I'm sure our listeners will have found this to be a really exciting podcast to listen to. Um, and I hope that, you know, we've covered some nice ground and discussed some quite tricky topics to navigate and covered them properly. So um, yeah, thank you so much for your time, Gideon. I'd just like to remind our listeners we'll provide the blog post that Gideon has um, provided for us in the past few years. That will be a link in the uh, description and any other kind of links where we can get in touch with Gideon, where we can follow what Gideon's up to. Who knows? He might be in Antarctica next year. He might be on Mars. He's he's all over the place. (laughs) So we'll provide his social media, website, anything like that to follow him. Um, And yeah, just like to say thank you so much, Gideon. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Frank. And thank you for keeping in touch for the past three years. I've always been my favorite guest in my email box whenever uh, the plus history <laughs> month comes up. <laughs> Thank you, Gideon. Appreciate it. Right. So I can stop recording now. <laughs>